0: Well, the genesis of uh, this particular sermon, or actually the direction that I decided to go with that, Uh occurred during the 2024 AFC Championship game between the Baltimore Ravens and the Kansas City Chiefs, or Chefs, if you're the poor guy in the Snickers commercial. Uh It was during the first quarter of that game that I witnessed something that was in my opinion so far out of the realm of possibility i'd never even considered it in fact to that point i did not have a category for it our oldest son daughter-in-law and two their two daughters were joining us for dinner and when they arrived my seven-year-old granddaughter exploded through the door Straight armed me, which I think is, a, is a, a penalty level offense, me, her grandfather, the pater familias, and demanded, Is the game on? Is the game on? This is because she was, in her own words, a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan <laughs> and didn't want to miss any of the game. And I'll give you one guess as to why the sudden interest in the Chiefs. I'm not going to tell you her name, but it rhymes with Sailor Drift. (laughs) By the way, according to Apex Marketing Group and Front Office Sports, (laughs) as of the day of that game, January 28, the swift Kelsey romance had generated a quote-unquote brand value for the Chiefs in the NFL of over three hundred thirty-one million dollars this season, according to the NFL, as of the same day, season sales of Travis Kelsey jerseys had increased by over four hundred percent. He picked the right girlfriend. <laughs> All of this perfectly dis- fits what David Brooks in a June. 2023 New York Times opinion piece dubbed Uppercase S Spectacle. And the age of spectacle, he writes, is upon us. Spectacle, almost always in the form of some kind of media, has become the modus operandi of our time. And it seems like that should be modus operandis, but it's it's not. I looked it up. <laughs> According to the internet, I mean, I'm, I'm right. Spectacle has become a primary lens through which we see reality, which makes the choice of the word spectacle somewhat ironic. Spectacle is a moment in time in which our gaze is transfixed by some specific person or image or video or event. It captures an instant when our eyes and our brains focus and fixate on something projected at us. That is, until we swipe quickly to the next one. This mostly seems like so much harmless fun until we realize that every spectacle wants something from us, too. Particularly demanding, Brooks writes, is activism in the form of spectacle. The point of this kind of spectacle, he says, is not to resolve differences, it is to attract attention. In spectacle, you thrive by offending people. Narcissism is rewarded, humility is forbidden. Inflaming hatred is part of the business plan. But every spectacle, good, bad, and banal, makes some kind of demand on us. This is a reality I think most most of us fail to see. Spectacle aims to provoke something in us in order to extract something from us. The pornography industry wants our lust. YouTubers want our views and likes and subscriptions. Netflix literally wants our sleep. In 2019, actually calling sleep its biggest competitor. (laughs) Think about the number of times you've sacrificed sleep to binge watch something. That's their business model. And so, at us comes a never-ending barrage of eye-popping new spectacle, all demanding something from us in return. Our, Our time, our tears, our outrage, our sympathy, our affection, our wallet, our votes, and most importantly, our attention. This is because in the age of spectacle, attention is the currency of power. On the last Sunday of Epiphany every year, we commemorate and mm-hmm. contemplate the transfiguration of Jesus, celebrating the power of God the Father, revealing the glory of his mind-bendingly incarnate self and son to the world, which if you think about it, would have been quite a spectacle. It was Caused Peter just to blurt out nonsense, and 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 the other disciples with him were terrified. He says, he certainly remembered it for a long time because he wrote about it decades later. But in revealing these these things to us about himself, God demands something too. This is my beloved son, he says in Mark nine seven. Listen. Pay attention to him. Here's how Saint Peter says it in today's epistle reading. I think it's worth reading just one more time. Second Peter chapter one, verses seventeen through nineteen. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him. By the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on his holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. Which is hard to do when our attention is elsewhere. It would be easy at this point to retreat to a lazy position that is simply anti-spectacle. Trash the TV, throw the iPhone in the bay, nuke the Xbox, become a Luddite, live a spectacle-free existence. And yet, that's exactly not how God confronts the age of spectacle. Instead, he points to a greater spectacle, the greatest spectacle ever devised in the mind of God and brought about in the world, his son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. It's worth reading the gospel passage again to catch how he does this. Uh, Mark 9, 2 through 9, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why the appearance? At first, of Moses and Elijah, Jesus transfigured by himself combined with the voice from heaven would have been more than enough Mm -hmm. spectacle to set apart in the hearts of the twelve and ours, Jesus Christ as Lord. Somehow, in the wisdom of the Father God, and as much as Jesus taught on the point, for example, in Matthew 5, There had to be an essential linking together of Jesus of Nazareth with the highest representatives of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, before the profound vision of Jesus only. A linking followed by a dissolution. Moses and Elijah and the revelation they represent must not be allowed to linger in their subconscious as in any way equally meaningful to that of Jesus. The law and the prophets must be shown to be under him with the light of his face revealing theirs, not the other way around. Judging from Peter's comments in our New Testament reading on this experience and the word of the prophets, it seems The point is made. Christ is the point at which all time collides, where all human spectacle meets one unsurpassed cosmic divine spectacle for the ages. From that moment on, God intended all human gaze to center itself on Jesus, God's climactic Spectacle, which is one of the reasons he so often calls us to his table. This is my beloved son crucified for you. The spectacle to capture your heart and mind forever. Everything about you and your eternal destiny boils down to what kind of spectacle Jesus is to you. The spectacle you see in Christ says everything about you. Christ serves as the ultimate spectacle. He is the one who most captures our hearts, or should most capture our hearts. We were, in fact, created to be drawn to spectacle and thus to be captivated by the beauty of Christ. And so, by divine design, Christians are pro-spectacle. We are called to give our entire lives to his greatest spectacle to attentionally gaze upon its beauty. And that's where the greatest tension of our age of ever-competing spectacle lies. The age of spectacle is all about wealth, advertising, coercion, popularity, and grabbing more and more attention from us. But even more problematic, particularly digital spectacle, triggers something even more pernicious Worse, because of what we sinners do with that spectacle. Because at root, we feed on diversions, ultimately, to escape Christ. Because that gaze isn't always comfortable. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he isn't always nice, but he is good. Hebrews chapter 1 is one of the grandest portraits of Christ in his glory of his atoning sacrifice for sinners offers us a spectacle of the supremacy and majesty of God's son we did not read it today but Hebrews 1 is so compelling that it calls for us to urgently apply ourselves to it in the very first verse of Hebrews 2 Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 therefore it says Hebrews 1 is what the therefore in Hebrews 2, one is therefore. The logical conclusion of Christ's glorious atonement follows from that first word. Therefore, we must pay attention. He actually says, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Adrift! From what we have heard, probably for the writer of Hebrews, a nautical metaphor, but it works just as well in aviation. It tells of the supreme importance of holding course toward a fixed point, to avoid drifting off and becoming hopelessly lost. When I do cross-country training with my students and we are studying pilotage and dead reckoning, It is not, (laughs) it cannot be understated the importance of, if you are five degrees off at the beginning of a 200-mile flight, you're going to be hopelessly lost by the end of it. It doesn't take much. Sorry, but Lauren reminded me this week of this joke. How do you know if there's a pilot at the party? Oh, don't worry, he'll tell you. (laughs) how do you know if there's a pilot in your pulpit (laughs) same answer but it is experience that I have so we must no suggestion or hint but a demand we must pay much closer attention to Christ a commentary I read a commentator that I read this week said it this way, and it's worth writing down, attentional neglect begets affectional drift. Attentional neglect begets affectional drift. Attentional neglect, allowing our attention to shift from Christ by distraction or laziness, begets affectional drift, the wandering of our heart. This is one of the core challenges we face as Christians in an attention economy. Only Christ can be the most brilliant spectacle for us. And when our attention neglects Christ, we drift away from him. That's the point of Hebrews 2.1. To drift is the easiest thing in the world. And this drift is inevitable when we find ourselves constantly seeking after a new thrill in our media, meanwhile losing interest in the person of Christ. This is tragic because... All of creation literally exists by Christ and for Christ. We're told in Hebrews 2.10 to be born with Christ is for our minds and hearts to be disconnected from the greatest thrill of the cosmos, severed from God's very purpose for his creation as a screen to display the worth and beauty of his son, Jesus. There's no... Greater catastrophic loss to a soul than to grow weary of Christ. The spectacle of all spectacles. The spectacle for which everything else exists. And this catastrophe, I fear, is only accelerated in a media age like our own that inundates us 24-7, 365. But this attentional drift, though through a sensual neglect is hardly a temptation unique to the age of spectacle. In fact, there's that moment in Mark's account of the transfiguration of Jesus, when Mark in 9-7 says, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This thunderous word from the heavens, this call to serious listening, spoken over the word over Jesus is spoken into what has always been the clamor of the world's attention market. It's always been. Listening here means a lot more than casually tuning in for a moment or two before we tune out again. It means real listening, intense listening, listening that hurts, attentional gazing, as the psalmist said in today's psalm, upon the beauty of the Lord. Attentive straining as Elijah did in the cave on the mountain after what is said, giving ourselves wholly to the task of attention. To Jesus. Why? Because he is God's word. He is what God says to us. Listen, listen, listen. Give Christ your life attention, not in tweet by tweet or whatever the heck they're called now, X by X. What are they called them? Does anyone know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Focus on him and sustain discipline as if your life depends on it, as if you will drift away if you lose sight of him, because you will. Spectacle demands our attention and our affection. Christ demands our attention and our affections. Because this is the competition. So we must always be asking, does he have my heart? This is really the point of this Lenten season that we're entering. A season in which we are brought once again to giving our most earnest and careful attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We deliberately turn our backs on lesser affections. We gaze upon his unsurpassed beauty. We vigorously pursue him in our daily life. And of course, this isn't just checking a box. It depends both on real effort on our part and the supernatural work of God. It's important to remember that grace is opposed to earning grace, is not opposed to effort. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our spiritual affections, once dead, are now alive. And those reborn affections are made for Christ. This isn't natural and it's not automatic. It's supernatural grace. Coupled with a life of discipline. We keep working at this until we can affirm with Peter in 1 Peter 1 8 that even though we have not seen Christ, we have not yet beheld the spectacle of his transfigured presence. We now love him with a love that fills our hearts with joy, a joy that cannot be put into words. So, my primary concern over our worst digital habits, isn't TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, Netflix, Marvel, Disney, the iPhone, the Xbox, or X. And it's bigger than pornography or MA-rated gaming. The battle isn't merely over the sinfulness of the world's spectacle marketplace. It's a battle over media saturation by the sheer volume of new media we consume. Christ grows more and more distant from our attention and our affections. In the saturation of digital media, we take our eyes off Christ, lose our direction, and begin to drift. Social media and gaming and Netflix binging and performative posturing in politics, the whole age of spectacle is built on one premise, And that premise is a lie. If you give more of your life to your screens, you will become more satisfied. That is an absolutely false promise. And it will never deliver. This is a foundational problem Christians face today. In the constant and momentary thrill of our pixelated world, we lose confidence that Christ alone can truly (laughs) satisfy. What can we do? How do we respond as we enter this season of Lent? Maybe, maybe, listen, this may not be at all an issue for you, for some of you. But for some, it is. And if it is, I'd ask you to consider three practical steps as we enter into Lent. First of all, be honest about your own susceptibilities to the world's spectacles. All of us face these challenges to some degree or another. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Sheol is an open mouth, always consuming life day and night, a mass graveyard never filled. And that's us. Our eyes and hearts and minds are insatiable, always roving, never fully satisfied by anything in the world. Which means, again, our great enemy isn't the seduction of to our spectral, spectacle makers. Our great enemy is our own insatiable eyes, my own eyes, your own eyes. Where your eyes go, so goes your heart. Where your heart is, there you are. We are what we love, and we love what we consume. Attention and affection are linked. So if you glut yourself on the spectacle of this world, your heart must drift away from Christ. We all must be forthright about that reality inside us because no one is exempt. Secondly, consider fasting from the buffet of digital media this Lent. I'm talking here about a kind of digital detox, getting away from our dependence and desires for our phones and streaming devices. These practices are how we learn and learn again. The endless cascade of spectacle on my phone is not my God. And social media isn't the source of my happiness. Christ alone is. The digital detox is a withdrawal from the attention power currency system. It's a fast. Fasting is how Christians throughout history have said, my desires are not my God. I do not have to satisfy every single urge that I have. Physical satisfaction is not my comfort, and consumption is not the basis of my happiness. Christ alone is. We use these things rightly when Christ is at the center of our lives and not something from from outside us as the center of our lives. In a consumer-driven age of super-abundance, fasting has become even more urgent. Food, for example, is a powerful habit, and so is our phone. Every day, most of us habitually turn to our phones more often than we turn to sugar. Smartphones are virtual candy. So a digital detox may be a way of saying the endless spectacle of digital media Available at my fingertips are not my God. The self-affirmation and acceptance I seek in social media is not the basis of my happiness Christ's acceptance of me my union with him is And only when our lives are re-centered on Christ Can we learn to consume media in an honorable way and with eternal purpose many? Movies and videos and games and apps are wonderful gifts to us. When God created Adam and Eve, he knew. Hmm. He knew that his creation would produce these things. Some of them are wonderful gifts to us. I, I think most of you know I've been seeing a cardiologist, and the first thing my cardiologist does when I sit down with him He wants to see my phone because it keeps track of what my heart's doing. That's such a gift. So many games and apps and movies and videos are wonderful gifts to us and can be wholeheartedly embraced. But like all fasting, a digital detox is sanctified gratitude. One way to ensure that our lives center on the gift giver And not on his proliferated gifts. Which leads to my third suggestion. And this is very important. Because I don't want to put these in simple categories. Good and bad. I think that's lazy. St. Augustine talked a lot about ordo amoris. Learning properly to love the things that God loves in the way, in the order that he loves them. Knowing that even good things, right things, things that we should love, if not properly ordered, can become the enemy of the best thing. This may start with something as simple as a commitment to praying every morning. That today, I love the things that you love in the way that you love them. Thinking about, thinking about what a powerful prayer that is to pray over your children. God, lead them to love the things you love in the way that you love. We dare not let the greatness of Jesus Christ get lost in our many other affections. This is one of our greatest challenges. The digital age it's as easy as giving our affections over to this age of spectacle to this attention economy and our delight in Christ will simply deteriorate we will drift and that drift away from Christ for a digital thrill is the worst trade in the universe to turn away from God's great spectacle in favor of the next little buzz of media good and entertaining as it might be. In all of this, we must proceed in faith though, knowing that listen, digital minimalism will not save you. And a new life hack app will not save you. A digital detox will not save you. Throwing your smartphone into your smartphone into the bag will not save you. Nuking your Xbox will not save you and tossing your television in the garbage will not save you. Any of those drastic actions might help, you, but my ultimate hope, our ultimate hope, rests only in one spectacle, the most satisfying spectacle of all time in space, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.